I, and I tell my kids, you don't, you don't say your mom wrote a sex book. You say my mom wrote the sex book. That's what you do. I come from a long line of uh, repressed Puritans and, you know, non-sex talkers, like zero sex. I had two older sisters. One of them talked to me about sex. My brother kind of told me how it worked in a way that was so not helpful and not accurate. But then my friend, Cindy Pierce, lives around the corner from me. She seventh child in a family of, you know, big sex talkers. So she got into this gig of talking about sex with the fraternities down at Dartmouth, I think it was, being the auntie that people could talk to about it. Then she was doing all these talks and we would run together every morning. And I'm like, Cindy, you gotta write the book. She'd said these stories were just so great because people would tell her everything. And she's like, all right, will you do it with me? So I'm like, okay, yeah. Because I will be the Puritan, I'll be, I'll be the non-sex talker and you'll be, because really I represent a lot more of the public than you do. And so we can just, we'll just ask all our friends about their sex lives. It'll be super fun. You can imagine being our friends. They're like, no, Cindy and Edie are coming. So, we, and, and we started worried like, oh, you know, are people going to really tell us about their sex lives? You couldn't get people to stop talking. Hi, I'm Chris Whiteout. Welcome to Living It, the podcast where we join experts in the experience of being human. Be bold. Say yes to adventure. Say yes to living it. Welcome to Living the Progression. Then all of a sudden, when they had a bad year and they were kicked off, they're like, well, what? Wait, you guys aren't all on my team? And I was like, yeah, that's the way it works. <laughs> You're only as good as your last race, basically. So I feel like I knew that. I, I learned that going in. And again, I mean, I think it's the, the middle school thing, that whole just not taken for granted, not, not assuming that anyone else is going to be looking out for you. Looking out for yourself. And, and that's, and it is that kind of hard sport too, isn't it? Because somebody's going to tell you something, some coach is going to tell you something and it could be brilliant, but it might not necessarily work for you. And as an athlete, you have to figure out how to assimilate whatever the coaches are telling you and put it into practice because ultimately you're the only one going through the starting gate. Right. You have right. to make it work for you. Yeah. And yeah. you were successful. I mean, like two-time Olympian, top 10 in the world, like top 10 in the world. And, and I mean, we get to be a weird country for ski racing oftentimes, right? Where your value is based on what you do during a two-week period of time every four years. The rest of your career really doesn't matter all that much, unfortunately. But you were super successful. And then and then you went from there and started telling the story about ski racing. How did how did you decide to make that progression from being a ski racer to racer X to writing about it? Because writing's not an easy thing to do. It's not like you know, you just know how to do it naturally. Well, I think, I mean, I, I was sort of writing all the way. I never thought I would be a writer. I never um, envisioned, I don't know what I envisioned for myself, but that I didn't see that. But but I did always, you know, now that I look back on it, I always kept journals and um, there were a lot of torturous times there. So when I look back at my journals, they're a little bit depressing, but it was kind of therapy, I think, at the time. Um, so, so I definitely was always sort of looking at, and I think it helped me have a different perspective on situations you know when you write about it you reflect you can also kind of take yourself you know have the airplane view of, of the scene and what's going on um 
And then the writing really came about because Gary Black, who was tr um, trustee of the ski team, and he was a huge supporter of, of, of ski racing and owned Ski Racing Magazine. Um, when I quit, offered me, he said, do you want to write you know, a piece? And so I wrote a piece, and that piece was Racer X, the first article I did for ski racing. And it was a, sort of about retirement and some thoughts on that. And that turned into a working for them and covering races and Racer X being a regular feature. And then a, when I graduated from college, finally at age 29, because I graduated from high school at 15, so I was in no hurry. God. Um, so then, then it, you know, I was going for a different job and used Ski Magazine as a reference. And Ski Magazine said, hey, why don't you come to New York and work for us? And so it all, I don't know, all of a sudden it was a career. Um, and I, what I found though, is how much I liked it is because it was a way, you know, I think we all, it's hard to quit um, sports, as any, any sport. And um, with skiing, I missed so much about it. I mean, I didn't miss the actual competition really, um, but I missed the whole scene and I missed the people and it was a great way to stay involved. And um, I think that's sort of the fantasy of everyone is to somehow stay involved in a way that isn't, you know, I never won, I didn't win any medal as my kids will remind me, especially the younger one, he really, not even a bronze mom, um, but I, in, 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 which in a way is a gift because I was never, I'm never trying to sell my ski racing pass because it, it was okay, but it wasn't, it was nothing to hang your hat on. So, um, but to be able to stay involved and not have to sort of like sell what I wasn't and instead be able to, you know, continue interviewing people that are in the sport and people that, you know, in part of the skiing history um, is just a really nice way to stay connected. Um, and I think, you know, it'd be great if each sort of generation of skiers that came through had somebody like me that was that connector, because I feel like our, our group of, um, of athletes, the, the women especially, have stayed really tight. And I know some other eras have on the ski team, but it kind of takes somebody keeping those connections going. And I just, because that's what I do, um, I, I'm able to, to kind of keep, keep everyone in the mix. And so that that softened the blow, it sounds like, as well, of, of the oh, retirement. Because the retirement. Yeah, totally. So I actually, and so when I, you know, one of the of, of the many things that I said I'd never do, like when I was never going to ski race in college, because I just figured, well, I'm going to ski race, you know, once I made the ski US ski team as well, I'm going, you know, the Olympics and the World Cup. And, and then when I'm done, I'm going to be done. I would never race for college. Well, sure enough, I'm 27 when I retired from U.S. ski team, and I wasn't, I felt like I just still wanted to do it, and there's a little college, Sierra Nevada College, on the shores of Lake Tahoe, and I got a scholarship to ski, NCSA it was at the time, now it's USCSA, um, and it was so fun, it was great, and it was a bunch of, and I, I couldn't do, and I was too old to ski NCAA, so I, I couldn't do that, but this little school recruited all these ski racers from like Norway and Slovenia and Canada and Spain. And so we had this international team of like ex World Cup and ex Europa Cup people who were getting their degrees and still just wanted to get up early and train and, and do the ski racing thing. It was super fun. It was great. So that was my real step down program. And then working for ski racing, that was, you know, I had multiple layers of step down. It's good rehab. It's funny you say that your your son said not even a bronze mom, not even a bronze. But 
what what was the metal that you took out of it? What was because in some ways it sounds like there was an education that you oh, took totally. out of your your ski racing. Yes, there there was, and I think, and that's part of why I wrote "Shut Up and Ski." Um, was it was really about that? It 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 ended up it was about all my ski racing, but it sort of distilled into this one year of trying to make the Olympics in 1988. Um, and I, the, the story of that year is that everything went wrong. And I should know this stat, but at the time, I think we were the first team in, in 40 years, maybe that didn't get an Olympic medal. So if you, if you extrapolate that out to now, there's still no team other than ours. And I think it was like 36 to us that didn't get a medal and then no one since so it's like well if nobody's gonna nobody's gonna hear about us or know about us if i don't write about this but but the thing about that year is so many things went wrong and so many people got injured and it's just like we could not get out of the way of bad luck but you know we made it we made it through you know just making it to the games was a huge victory <laughs> and there were there were so many things working against us so i guess that's the the medal i got out of it, it was you know, just sticking with it and being a survivor. Um, and there were, and those people that I made, went through, those teammates that went through that experience with, you know, we're really, we're still great friends. Not all of them even were on the team because some were in, so many were injured that year. Um, but we've been through a lot together since. And um, I think that experience, everything we did that wasn't winning a medal um, went into this, you know, fabric of a, life experience that has, you know, endured this long. And that's 33 years, right? That's a yeah. long time. It is a long time. And I look at my kids, you know, they are 22 and about to be 20. And when I think, you know, some of these kids, some of the, their friends that they've already had for 10 years, they might be, you know, when they're my age, they might still have those friends. And these are all ski racing buddies. It's, it's pretty cool. Do you think ski racing is different than other sports in that respect? You know, yeah, there's some things that are built into it. Um, the co-ed factor, which is a little bit less now, I think, just youth sports in general seems to be, but, but still ski racing is pretty, pretty co-ed. Um, it's something you really can't do. I mean, you can do it off season, but, but there is a beginning and an end to the season. Um, so it doesn't sort of just like drift off forever. So that, that sort of makes it special. There's a lot of discomfort involved. There's a lot of time in vans and time in lodges, time on the chairlift. You just have it. It's not like you just show up at a match, you do your thing and you go or at a practice. Like there's, you really spend a lot of time together and a lot of it, you know, not very luxurious. Like you're, you're, um, you know, it doesn't matter. It, it's better than I'm sure it used to be. They would not put up with the way we used to do things. Um, but I think it sort of, it, it does screen people out just because it's, it's cold and it's dangerous and it can be, you know, kind of miserable <laughs> a lot, <laughs> but it can be also, it's, it's got the highs and the lows, but you also use together sort of scrapping it out for a, for a, a lot, a long period of time. I've always felt like it was it was separate to a certain extent. And part of that was was for me where I grew up. Like none of the kids who went to grammar school and middle school with me were ski racers. I mean, short of my brother. 
it was the two of us. Our parents would pick us up at school and we grew up on this tiny little mountain in Massachusetts and they'd drive us to the mountain 10 minutes away. And I had friends in the neighboring town who were, who were ski racers, but it was, it was different. It wasn't like being on the soccer team where you're on the soccer team with all the people who are in that particular school from that particular town. Yeah. And yeah. it seemed like as you get older that you go further and further, right? You go from like your little group to then a regional group to a national group or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it was interesting too, what, going back to Ted, when he was talking about what other sport do you, do you lose so much more than you win? You can be the world's best. And, and there's, there's that factor of it. Like you really, the people are, you're doing it for the love of the sport. And that's, you know, there's this, there's all these things that go into what you have to tolerate to be a ski racer that sort of screen out and, and, and you end up with these people that are, they're different, they're different cats. And yeah, you can't just sign up for the league and go. I mean, you can, but it's such a, it's an enormous pain in the butt. I mean, also getting, you know, getting your kids into ski, skiing, let alone ski racing, it's monumental effort. So by the time, you know, you get to the resort and other people are doing it, you're like, you're my people. You, you can tolerate this. Hold on. Now, now describe what that monumental effort is. Oh, so you got, <laughs> you wake up on a Saturday. I mean, you know, those people, you get to the weekend, you want to relax a little, you want to sleep in and have breakfast. My kids have never even been out to breakfast. And, and I mean, they did in the, I guess in the summer they may have, but like winter, they didn't know what it was, was to go out for breakfast because you're up. Your kids, you know, they're in their jammies, they're watching TV, you know, and you're like, they, they actually, they think they're going to be when they're really young, they're doing that. And then all of a sudden it's like, nope, up, you're up, you know, you feed them or you get some food that could be in the car and you're getting all the gear together and, you know, just trying to get two squirming people and all their crap and all the food and everything you're going to need for the day into the car, you get to the area and you got to get all that wrap into the lodge and you got to get it on the kid and it's it's a lot I mean it's a really you you have to really see the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow to, to stick with it and it's early and it's, it's dark. early yeah I mean it's oh. early and it's dark I mean if the kids knew there was an option they would never do it so that's you know people be like oh my kids they just didn't like it I'm like you don't ask them I mean, when they were old enough, they, if they had said, we really don't like this, fine. But by then they were hooked. But it wasn't like we were saying, do you want to watch Scooby-Doo and have pancakes? Or do you want to go out in the freezing cold with really uncomfortable boots on and freeze all day? Okay. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Where you there can't no Yeah. <laughs> you don't give them a choice. Okay. You know, but they, but they loved it. I mean, I have, I do say when I remember the, my, one of my moments was like, okay, I won this is I, my oldest was, I don't know, he was maybe four or something. He was or three. He was really young. He was on his back in the parking lot. Like he, they, my kids, they really didn't throw tantrums. They're pretty good that way. But he was just like being red face beating his arms and legs i don't want to go home like he wanted to stay in that frozen parking lot because that was awesome <laughs> it's like this is great i have won 
you must think at that point that you've done something, right? Like this kid could really be a ski racer. Like every, <laughs> normal people, sane people would be going home right now. And this right. kid, no, no, right. I want more of this. Yeah, don't take me away. And then in this, the, the other moment was we were, we were at a wedding in the summer and I couldn't find him. He was pretty young then. And uh, looking all around. So I find him by all where the drinks are. He's found a cooler and he's putting his feet, bare feet, in the ice like okay that's a skier <laughs> so so is this nurture or nature how does that one work <laughs> it's hard to know you know so my husband is was a ski racer too he's we don't do the masters thing at all but he um he was also a ski racer so as somebody pointed out to me kindly on my blog said your kids are lucky my wife always says, you know, you have to have a crazy parent to, to raise a ski racer or your kid has to have a crazy parent. Your kids are lucky. They got two crazy parents. <laughs> and so hard to know it's nature versus it's kind of both with them. But I mean, I'd like to think we were humane through it all, but they, they did. They liked it. I mean, it was, they don't know the difference. It's what you do. They got fries and hot chocolate. I mean, come on. It doesn't get any better than that. French fries and hot chocolate. And, you know, one of the things that I remember, it's fun. I did a, uh, I did a commencement speech at, uh, at Lake Placid and, uh, and for the, for the ski academy there. And, and I came in and it was the smell, you know, so it's, so it's a cement floor and it was the smell of spilled hot chocolate on this cement floor like it's it's years and years this accumulation yeah. of and, and i was like ah like that's a that's a ski lodge that's the smell of a ski lodge <laughs> patina <laughs> see like that and there's a lot of people that might not enjoy that but you know we appreciate the finer things so what's the what's the culture of of being a ski racer so you are so, so you are a ski racer, Chan, your husband is a ski racer. Your kids are ski racers now. What, what culture were you, were you introducing them to? Uh, I think, I mean, there's a lot of just, uh, I mean, it's kind of a shut up and ski culture, like a little bit, just go do it, you know, and um, that you, that you gotta get up early before you can think about it and go out and do something it's a it's about being around people um obviously it's about some risk taking and because skiing is you know adrenaline sport um, it's about the mountains yeah. excuse me and losing yeah. <laughs> yeah right right it's about failure want to get you into something where you can fail um we didn't talk so much about failure then we didn't really i mean i feel like we that was just part of the game now people are really calling out the failure it's like yeah you're right this does kind of suck but <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it's different when you're young though too right because because it's like a race of two people in some ways it's like did you beat your buddy or did your buddy right. beat you I mean you guys are right. number 175 and 176 in the race but you know it's like it's a race between two people in some ways when you're a little kid right right, right. yeah and it's yeah I think definitely as 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 adults you get more much more and parents get more into the results and and you know it's, it's funny sometimes you'll see parents like after a race they don't want to approach their kid or they they sort of approach the kid with a long face you know expecting them to be disappointed and the kid's like wow 
that was fine. Like, <laughs> you know, they, they have less expectations. Um, yeah, I think though that the ski culture is just, it's super healthy and outdoors and you take what you get kind of like, you just do your best with what you got. It's very MacGyver. Um, and, you, and things, you kind of never know what to expect. Things change. I mean, I love that on, on any given race day, you know, the light's going to be different. The hill's going to, the snow is going to be different. The course is going to be different for every person. So, you know, just you have to take all that stuff as it comes. So I think it does, it, it builds, you know, flexible people that can think on their feet and, uh, and like to have a good time. I mean, skiers like to have fun. It's fun, social. I think there's that. And it's also interesting too, that you spend like an off season preparing for your season, which, which I don't remember doing for other sports. It sort of seemed like I just did other sports. You just kind of show up, but skiing, you're like, you're, you're training specifically for it. But then also like you can, you can have a race and it can be a great race or it can be not such a great race. And then you can go, you can leave and go play on the rest of the mountain. You can go right. ski through the right. woods. You know, as a little kid, you can ski all those little rabbit trails or you can go jump off cliffs or you can go ski powder or bumps or whatever. And it's, I don't think that there's that in, in other sports. Like you have a soccer game. You're not like, okay, now we're going to go play a different version of soccer. Right, right. And you're like, oh, you're done with swim practice. Let's just go do some fun laps. <laughs> no. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. I mean, I didn't even think, think about that, the whole free skiing part of it. And I think too, when we, you know, when we got our kids into ski racing, it wasn't so they would be great ski racers necessarily. It was so, so they would be capable skiers and enjoy it. Cause I mean, I was selfish. I'm like, I want to take ski vacations. And, then, and these guys, they got to learn how to ski. It really wasn't much beyond that. But then when you, when you get into it, and I always, uh, another thing I said, I'd never do that if I lived in the East, well, I was never going to live in the East. Of course I am. And then, oh, if I lived in the East, I'd never be a ski racer. But then you get back here and the, you know, the mountains are quite a bit smaller and the weather's quite a bit nastier. And, but otherwise, what else are you gonna do all winter? You know, sit inside and go crazy. So of course we were gonna do that. And, and, it, and you get out there and it's the same, you know, yeah, it's not a bluebird 40 degree day every day with perfect snow like in the West, but it's the same, everything I love about the sports that, you know, the people and the riding the chairlift and gathering the lodge and, and the sport itself is just super fun. And, and you're right, like there's the, there's the whole, the training or the racing, but then there's everything else, the building, the jumps and skiing in the woods and doing whatever stupid goofy stuff you do. Which is great. And that's the stuff that you tell stories about for the rest of your life and create these long lasting friendships. Now you, you brought your kids into ski racing, you said selfishly so that you could go on ski vacations. And so I'm assuming that they could keep up yeah. now 20 and 22 it, is that switching where you are starting to worry about you might not be able to keep up and that the kids are going to are going to abandon you oh we that the not keeping keeping up happened so long ago but then i realized i was like what was i trying to think like go on ski vacations first of all you know paying for the ski race we're not going and then anywhere where we would go is probably to one of their ski races. so our ski vacations are like work <laughs> white face um and then you know if they ever if they ever, when they are racing west, you know, that 
unfortunately, we're usually not, you know, we're not part of that because we're not going to follow them around unless they start going to places that are really cool. Then, then who cares if they want us to go or not? We're going. <laughs> but yeah, the idea of a family, I don't, I don't know, because they're so busy ski racing, there's sort of not time for a family ski vacation. Um, what we do get, what we've gotten sort of every year until, except, you know, for last year, um, and before my oldest started going to college, we were all in the same routine. I'd get spring skiing out in the West, um, in Squaw Valley, where I grew up. And so that was our, that was basically my ski vacation every year. And it's awesome. I mean, because then you get to see family and get West and they got to, because there's no real skiing back here at that time. So the kids got to extend their ski season and they got cousin time. So that was, that was great. And, and I say the, the can you keep up thing kind of tongue in cheek as well, because I think that's one of the great things about skiing is that it can be so cool generationally too, where right. young kids, older kids, parents, grandparents can all go out and, and have a good time. And you can all be entertained where it doesn't really happen in other sports. I mean, there might be like the, you know, the picnic softball game or something like that, but it, it's different than that you can have a great time your kids can have a great time side by side and you're not necessarily doing exactly the same thing right it's not like you know you go back for a reunion and play the alumni soccer game and you break your ankle twist it's you know skiing is one of those things that you can do well within whatever your range is you know till you die um, and I, I do, you know, remember many times sitting on the lift with, you know, my kids and myself and my mom and dad or mom or dad, and just thinking, this is, this is really cool. Like, and because when we were all like, nobody was holding back, everyone was getting what they needed out of the day. Um, and yet you all come together on the chairlift and it's pretty neat that way. And then my kids did, you know, my, both my parents have passed away now, but they've, they skied with their grandparents and, and, you know, really got to experience them sort of in their in their zone like because they they love skiing um and you know share the mountains and and share that experience with them so it's pretty neat you've been able to experience that as an athlete you coach you coach the u14 right at the fort sayer program as well when you get some of the young kids so so an athlete a coach a parent of athletes what's the responsibility to kind of tell tell the story of skiing to, to people who might not have experienced quite as much as you have. You mean as like when coaching kids? When coaching like, kids, but also like when you're writing, you know, when yeah. you're writing and trying to, trying to fill those gaps and like what's important, what's not important, right. uh, you know, bringing, I think you did a, a chocolate chip cookie recipe or something like that in one, right. of, your, one of your pieces. Lila LaPagna. Yeah, I do. I actually ha I have a cookie jar that has a little piece of tape on it says you probably need a cookie and bring it out to the NCAA <laughs> carnivals because chances are, you know, it's ski racing. So 95% of the people didn't do as well as they wanted to. So they need a cookie. Um, I, I guess my what I try to do as when I'm coaching or when I'm writing, it's sort of the drum I'm beating a lot is um, this, it's a long road kind of concept of you don't, you can't, you can't get all hung up on, you know, a result from a, a day or a winter or, you know, a season, anything. Um, and get, because it's, it's a, it's a very long road where you're going and, and it, it takes a long time to get, to get good at it. But whatever your, 
you know, it's all the, the experience is worth a lot more than, than the results and not to get hung up on, on that part because you're getting so much more just in, you know, just a kid getting into the starting gate alone. Like you said, you know, nobody, nobody gets in there with you. And I, I, it astounds me, you know, every year when I'm out there coaching and, and you see these, you know, little stick figure kids, you know, getting into the gate and it's like ruddy and icy and it's a gray day and they, they're going out there, you know, as hard as they can. I just think, wow, that is, that's cool. I mean, that is, that's, that's pushing yourself, you know, and that, that's, that's just hard. And um, I think this sport, it, it demands that of you. And, and we don't always, you know, you don't always get the reward of like a, a great race for that, but you, it's truly character building and, and gives you self-confidence, you know, for life that, that it's, it's hard to get anywhere else. It's, it's hard to recognize the experiences that you've had until, until afterwards. So I'd imagine there's a lot of satisfaction for you to be able to kind of shine that light and, and say, you know, this, this was a victory. I mean, is that, is that part of what you take away from both the writing and the coaching? Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, everyone's sort of ready for the message whenever they're ready for it. And, and so I, you know, I don't want to be too preachy about it ever. That's it's because you can't paint too nice a picture of it either. It's like, it's, you get your bumps along the way. Um, but I think sometimes when you can sort of pull a lot of pieces of the experience, put it together into a, a story and people can see it that way, it's a little easier then for them to get the, in the mindset of like, okay, I don't have to freak out if, you know, as a parent or as a kid, if I'm, I'm not improving as fast or I didn't do as well as I wanted to do. You can try to put something out there in a sort of a bigger so they can see that in a bigger context. That's, I guess, the long road of like, we're all these, all the effort you're putting into this and all the time you're putting into this is it's, it's not coming back to you in the form of a result. It's, it's a much bigger life experience. And it's not worthless if you don't win. Right. Cause most of you are not, you are not going to win. <laughs> Thanks for playing. I mean, really, if you told someone getting into it, you'll win exactly yeah, <laughs> two times in the next 18 years. <laughs> but you can have a great time. You'll love it. You'll make yeah. lifelong friends. They're like, what are you selling me? How much does this cost? Oh, it costs a lot of money too. Yeah. And it'll hurt. You'll get hurt too. Yep. <laughs> so you've got that to look forward to, but this is the, this is the life. <laughs> is it interesting? Like, I mean, because then as you get older, right? I mean, as you get older, you get a greater sense of life, of, of things that, that go wrong. I mean, specifically like on the skiing side, like, like one of your, your teammates had a, had a plane crash, right? right. And, yeah. and sort of so, reduced back to zero. And how, how did ski racing apply to that? So Eva Tordokens, who you're referring back, she was a teammate and she was on that, she would have been on that 88 team. So she was one of those who got, got hurt right before the Olympics and um, ended up going to two Olympics after that. She's, her nickname was the Bulldog. She's like the most just tenacious, just toughest, hardest working, like called the Russian judge. <laughs> she just, she's really pushes hard and everything. So she, 
um, she's a pilot, had a private plane and um, crashed it two, no, three, two years ago, two and a half years ago. Um, and a crash that would have killed anyone else. She survived and in the hospital for like a couple months and then in rehab for a month and um, really had to learn, you know, relearn how to, how to walk, how to talk, um, really long road. So we, um, again, this, this group of us has stayed together, um, this group of women who went, these teammates from that, from that era. And, you know, we all rallied around when she got, got hurt and, you know, seeing her in the hospital, seeing her rehab and visiting her and, and taking her, I guess the first time, like six months, eight months, I guess, after injury, got her to high fives up in, in Tahoe. Um, that is an amazing organization that um, got, was the first time. So she was with, she was just sort of just trying to survive. And that was the first time she was in an environment where she sort of got in touch with her inner athlete and got a glimpse of what she might be able to, to do to recover. Um, but her whole journey, it's been, it, it's been such the athlete mindset, like, you know, it's been this mixture of, of just making audacious claims of things she's going to do because she had to, I think that's, that's the way she always was as an athlete and then managing expectations because obviously, you know, it's, it's going to take a long time. So what's, an, what's an example of an audacious claim of what she's going well, to do? she said she you know when she was not able to find her words and she was like dragging one through could barely walk on a walker like i'm gonna surf again and I'm like okay well she's surfed now i mean so she's she got to she got her she got saying this and and we're you know we're seeing her progress and we're like okay that's great you know have the dream and but also it's kind of thinking really can this happen and 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 she's you know, she wants to live independently and she's getting close to doing that. And, and we wanted to, you know, once we saw that she could surf, like, well, you got to ski again. And, um, that made her really nervous because like she, so much of her identity was with being, a, being an Olympic skier. I mean, she was amazing. Um, so it was funny cause I, I'm looking, I'm thinking, cause I'm not a surfer. So like, and I've tried a few times, pathetic at it. Like, okay, you've surfed. Like you're gonna skiing's gonna be a piece of cake for you, but what I didn't really realize is that in her, you know, her 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 vision of what skiing was, you know, she was she knew that it was gonna be so far from and and would what she a little bit what you know was thinking about with learning to mono ski, would what she could was able to do be so like depressing compared to what she, you know used to be able to do that it wouldn't be worth it you know that, that it would be like this big come down but we ended up getting um so christy turgeon coming and uh, heidi volker and i got her out to park city last february and she did ski and it was it was amazing it was really it was really cool and it was hard i mean it was and she was sort of like every step of the way reminding us of how hard it was going to be. And, you know, I don't want to go for too long and I don't want to go on anything too steep. And we're trying to assure her, you know, no, it's, you're going to be great. It's going to be like riding a bike. Yeah, not that riding a bike is easy. Um, and, uh, but, it, but I think she was doing, you know, she was like, yes, she wanted to do this, but then she was managing the expectation. And, but, but once it was hilarious watching her, it took her a little while, you know, her, her, you know, run on first time, the equivalent of it, Deer Valley was just sort of barely smushing the skis back and forth. And, and it still wasn't convinced. I don't think she was either. She's like, okay, I'm doing it, but I'm not really doing it. 
And then we get her on a real, you know, a steeper hill. And I was, I'll never forget skiing behind her and seeing her body just click into place and just boop, 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 make these turns and little pole plants. And it was, she just, it was, it was ingrained. It was, it was really neat. But, but is that mix? It's, Hold on one second. So she went just with the three of you. So it was Eva, you, Heidi, and Christy. So, so experts in one sense in the sport, but nobody who is an expert in Eva's sense of the sport in terms of like, what do we do with this woman who is, who is starting oh. over? And yeah, no, no, nothing. And then, and you know, a little things like we didn't even didn't even occur to us that, you know, we're going into pandemic. It didn't occur to us that, okay, we're going to arrive into a parking garage. So we're going to make her, you know, balance on one foot to put her boots on in a cold garage and then walk like, you know, of course there were elevators, but like walk to an elevator up and across cobblestones and the crowd and then having to go downstairs to a bathroom. I mean, the fact that she even got to the hill, you know, anyone that was in any way trained at this would have been like, thought of that step like, no you need to get her to the actual mountain before you've used up all your career you know your currency here and however much time she's got because you see it's got one leg is has was badly damaged and she's got all kinds of plates in it so she doesn't have that much time in a boot before it's you know excruciating and we used up a lot of it by just getting her to the hill yeah we didn't know it but again it all worked out <laughs> It all worked out. And so you saw her, her click in when you were skiing behind her. And, and what's the sense of joy for you? Because I'm imagining there was a sense of joy for her. But what's the sense of joy for you when you see that? Oh, it was kind of like, it was a little bit like, you know, having the first like good World Cup race. It was, you get down to the finish, you see your time, your place. It was relief. It wasn't like pure joy. It was just like, thank God. <laughs> Because I realized what was, you know, it was sort of not, I think all of us were doing the same thing. We weren't allowing ourselves to really think through the scenario of what if this didn't work. Whereas I realized later that's what Eva was doing the whole time. She was, she'd had enough things that hadn't worked and knew that feeling. And I think she, she had to, like, to protect herself. She had to have gone there in her own mind, like that this might not, that this is going to, this is not going to crush me if it doesn't work. Whereas we were like, oh, it's going to work. It's going to work. And then, and, and we, we just didn't let ourselves go there. That what if it didn't work? But I think in all, all, all our minds, there was this like, ooh, <laughs> that would be bad. So it was a lot of relief. And then it was joy. And then as she relaxed into it more, it was just like seeing her face, like this smile that just hadn't, you know, it was so unguarded and just, just pure joy. It was so great. Yeah, well, I, I think about it and I think, I mean, she has this unconditional love and support from her former teammates, right? Like, the, yeah. like there, there couldn't be a better situation. But then in some ways, there also couldn't be a more difficult situation because she could possibly disappoint you and, and right. lose I, this, yeah. this connection. But I do think that's, that's where the comfort was because she knew like, you know, that's what you get to out of having lived through what we've lived through together, just in competing is you've seen your, each other at your worst, you know, your best and your worst and everything in between. Um, so I do think she felt pretty safe. And like, even if this is worst case scenario, it stops here, you know, it's not. And she was very, you know, 
adamant that we didn't have more people there for that first day, for sure. Um, and even as people kind of came in in the, the next few days, that she was a little nervous. And then once she could do it, she's like, okay, I got this. Then bring them on. <laughs> well, that is the big worry for all of us, isn't it? Like, I mean, it's probably like you and I going out and mono skiing and like, okay, okay, you like, I was completely relieved when you <laughs> actually do it, when, when we weren't just picking you up the whole time. I was like, okay, okay, we can do that. And I would imagine that there was that same relief for you of like, okay, I don't want to be a burden flapping around here like a, like a fish out of water on the beginner. Yeah. You know? yeah. Hey, this is not the story that I thought it was going to be. <laughs> And B, still got to write it. And oh, yeah, first see, time really was great. That's where we time. stayed all day, all the whole two days. We were just on first time. It was wonderful. Great view of the parking lot. I do that, you know, when you do kind of rewrite scripts in your mind when they're not going well. I'm like, ah, okay. <laughs> Maybe it could be about this. It is, but but it is it is this progression, it seems like, right? This progression of like skiing is such a foreign activity, like when you think about it, right? Because so many other sports, the first element is running. Like, can you run? Can you play tennis? Can you run and swing? Can you run and shoot in, in basketball? Can you run and kick in soccer? But skiing is like, okay, we're going we're gonna to take these really long things and we're going to put them on your feet. So yeah. Can you be okay with gravity and the Ouija board. <laughs> oh, that, yeah, back to, so Eva, so we did Deer Valley and then that was kind of funny. So we went to Park City for a day and she's like, I want to go up payday. <laughs> Cause that's really easy. Cause <laughs> I remember that I raced on that hill. It was easy. And we had to, John and coming and Christy, Christy's husband was, was skiing with her and, and they're like, nah, Eva, we're going to go around that the steep part of payday on this road and then come into it. And she was having none of it. She's like, what do you mean? It's steep, you know, it's, it's fine. It's, I got it. And it was all we could do to convince her to go. And we did got her to go around and come underneath the, the face, the head wall of payday. Cause I wasn't going there again. <laughs> well, that's, and, and I don't know Eva obviously as well as you do, but she and I went to the language school at Dartmouth one summer. So when we were both on the, yeah, so we were at the language school at Dartmouth and, you know, and so I don't think we were, I was, I was taking French. I don't know what she was, I feel like she was taking Italian or something like that. So we weren't in classes together, but we sort of. Tamba, she was taking Italian. I think that's what I was remembering too. And I'm glad you went there and, and I didn't necessarily, since I don't know the story (laughs) nearly as well as you do, but, but I was, uh, it was when I was competing in the summertime. So I started competing in the summertime and it was right before. So it was 19, so it was 1992, must've been 92. So it was 92 was my first nationals that I went to in wheelchair racing. And so I was trying to get my training in, in the midst of my brain melting effectively, like having to speak French all day. And, and I went out one day and I was out for a training ride and Eva rode by and you know, Dartmouth, it's, it's a place where a lot of people are super active. And there were two guys who are, who are riding their road bikes, fully kitted out. You know, they're just like, they look like they know what they're doing. And I was coming the opposite way of them. And Eva was like, was in some ways like the little kid 
on her mountain bike with like minimal tire pressure, just hammering up <laughs> up to these two guys in their on their road bikes and then past them. And and for me, that that sort of captures her mentality of like, yeah. I am going to do whatever I need to yeah. do and I'm not going to yeah. be denied. Yeah. No, it's it's remarkable too how far she's, you know, and I have to remind myself when I, you know, have a, a conversation with her on the phone, a normal conversation and have to remember like the whole year after her accident, she couldn't, I, it was kind of like trying to figure out what Lassie was saying a little bit. Like it was because she couldn't find the right words and it was just hard to have, hard to just understand what she was really trying to say. And now, I mean, I have to pinch myself that she's, you know, you have a normal conversation and she's talking, talking about going surfing and she's driving and it's, it's amazing. Now, is she going to get you to go surfing with her since you've not been successful surfing? Is this one of those that you can learn side by side? She's she, she, she is the Russian judge. I don't want to surf with her, even after the injury. And I mean, she's she's already you know complaining about being you know she's she's started on a board that I would the only length board I have ever been on is the long one, and she's already like scooched down two sizes from that. And she can't get down to her six foot board yet, or she's so she's already surpassed what I do. So no way. <laughs> Well, it's, it's got to be great to see this progression, though, to see her from, you know, see the accident and then see her in a position where you didn't know. You didn't know if she would if she would ever get any better. And and, and you've certainly you've been through the other side of that. I mean, you wrote this great article uh, about your mother. I mean, it was just Mother's Day yesterday. I'm not sure when we'll publish this, but it was just Mother's Day yesterday and this great article about your mother going through going through Alzheimer's and and the one thing that I that I took away from that was sort of the joy of her coming back you know the pony I think you used the the, the yeah. term, right? <laughs> so tell us what the pony is how does that work uh well yeah this was the pony is that the theoretical pony is so it was really just about the you know they call Alzheimer's a long goodbye and it's not, my point was, it's really not, a, you don't, you don't have actually get to say goodbye. And, you know, being able to say goodbye to someone who can understand it and you can understand them, that, that would be like a pony, uh, getting a pony for Christmas. You never get that. Um, oh, that's right. But, the, but you do get the pony. Now I'm remembering the article. Yeah. But you do get the pony. Yeah. Because once my mom had passed away, I was able to, like, boom, she was back as the mom that I knew. And not the one, you know, not not the disease. It was, you know, I was remembering the person, not the disease. Where in the, in the last, you know, three years of her life, really, it was so much the of the disease coloring every experience with her because she couldn't communicate, and, um, and it was just frustrating for for her, and obviously, you know, for us, but much more for her. Um, and that was it was such a relief. That was what you know, like a pony at Christmas. It was not expected. I I thought. You know, I just thought, boy, it's been so bad for this long. Now when she dies, it's going to be that much worse. And it was like, oh, no, this is actually, this is better. Because now I'm able to just sort of wallow in the memories of my mom and be able to think of her that way. And, and you know, it was, it was interesting because she was the last few months of my mom's life was when Eva had her accident. And I would, 
trying to talk on the phone or seeing Eva in the hospital where she really couldn't communicate. And it was, and then, then my mom passed away and then I was spending time with Eva and it was, it was very similar that, that frustration of not, of the communicate, not being able to communicate and, and sensing the frustration of the person trying to be understood that couldn't be understood. It was, it was just interesting that those, it coincided. Um, yeah, new appreciation for just being able to, <laughs> to, to communicate with people. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, we all, I think we all take, I mean, this is the beauty of, of telling that kind of a story, right? Is that, that one, I think as we get older, we start wondering those kinds of things. I mean, I've, you know, started doing luminosity and these kinds of, you know, like keep, keep your mind going. Cause my, my godmother, my, my mother's sister has had profound Alzheimer's and, and she's, she's, she's happy. And, and, you know, she goes around kissing everybody and dancing and, and all these things, which is, which is an amazing gift. But my mother who was, who was younger, I think looked at that and, and said, I don't, I don't ever want to go in, in that way. I don't want to go in that direction. And, and you just, you never know, you know, you never know kind of how things go. And my mother was, my parents taught, uh, taught adaptive skiing. My father continues to teach adaptive skiing at Waterville Valley, New Hampshire. My mother was teaching a ski class and she was teaching this kid with, uh, um, with autism. And the kid was having a bit of a tough day and my mother fell intentionally, you know, just to like, just to like, you know, have the kid be able to go, oh, somebody else is, is doing this whole thing. But she had a heart issue and, and ha ended up having to get get they couldn't fly her and, and they gave her some blood thinners and 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 brought her to the you know she went and had the surgery she had a stent put in but she had had some sort of bleeding on the brain and ended up it was just profound it was in it was in the moment right and we just never we never get to choose like she went from doing exactly what she would choose to do to suddenly not not being there but in some ways, not having to go through that that period of of being there and not being there, and it's a it's a it's an interesting kind of uh, dilemma, I think, for all of us in some ways yeah. as we as we look at our lives, and you know, you look at like the the Saturday Night Live back in the day of like you know like like you know the die early, leave a good looking corpse kind of thing <laughs> or whatever, you know. It's like, yeah, I know. I guess it's, you know, and, and you just, you're not going to be able to choose, you know, and, and that, that was my, my father died suddenly. And, and then mom was like, I had to call it like, that was, I wanted to write a, still figuring out what to write as a book on this whole thing. But one of them was dying fast and slow, <laughs> like just that they, they were so different, such different experiences. And I think, yeah, I guess the just the hard thing with with the Alzheimer's is more I think for you know us as we're all of us thinking about the fear of it you know and I don't know I mean I guess I've I've gotten better about it I mean at first when my mom was going through it it was just you know it's all I thought about and that was another thing once once she had passed away I stopped like I sort of realized okay I didn't, there's nothing I can do about it, you know, 
I mean, yeah, there are things you can do. Certainly, for you personally. For yes. you personally, yeah, worrying for me personally. That, that it was going to happen to you as well. What you saw. Right. So, so it's just sort of that worry about it. You got to also, you know, you could, you know, worry, worry, worry about Alzheimer's and then get hit by a truck or, you know, something else. And so, I don't know. <laughs> Still trying to, I, I do sleep at night, which is good now. But there was a while there where it just was consuming because you do like that idea of what, what your mother was thinking about looking at her sister, I guess. So, I don't want this. Where you're checking yourself. And in some ways, then you're precluding yourself from living because right. none, of us, none of us have that big fish moment, right? The, uh, that movie, Big Fish, where he knew like when and how he was going to die. Oh. It's, I'm trying to think it's, uh, oh, what the heck is the name of the guy who, uh, it was like the guy who did Edward Scissorhands. And, uh, and uh, I'm trying to think, um, oh, I almost had it. I can't think oh. of the name of the director who did it, but this guy knew, like he yeah. knew when it yeah, was yeah. going to happen. And, and none of the rest of us know yeah. when it's going to happen. And yeah. so, so, so it's we don't have much of a choice, right? Well, we don't, and you know, there's just this super uplifting conversation, but we don't, we don't as a culture talk about end of life. You know, it's just one of those things that we, our culture doesn't talk about. Um, and, that is another thing that I do want to write about more. And I don't know in what, I mean, that, that essay was one way of talking about it, but um, there were a lot of things along the way that I learned that I wish had just been, I mean, I was very grateful for any sort of perspective I could get from people that would talk about end of life because um, there's no experts in it. <laughs> I mean, there are, but, but not from firsthand experience. Um, but I, you know, especially with with Alzheimer's, in the, which can potentially be such a long drawn out thing. Um, I just, you know, I've actually joined Facebook group and I'm working with the Alzheimer's, you know, volunteering for the, you know, the walk to end Alzheimer's and stuff. And it is, I think, instead of, you know, instead of just sort of like being afraid of it and turning away from it, I'm, I'm trying to learn more about it and, and be part of that community. Because um, I, I think just the, the more, you know, the better and the, the more support you have out there when you're going if if you're going through it or in, in any capacity because i think of all you know we're either going to be going through it or we're going to be know some you know someone close to us is going through it it's nobody's that far away from it right especially as we grow as we continue to grow older and older right and and live longer you kind of need to do it though i mean you don't I, I in my mind you don't really have a choice i mean you need a bookend right because you've done a book on effectively the beginning of life you, you've written a book written a book on sex how how, how, how did that one happen I, i'm assuming that this is not coming from your coming from your mother this is a transition i think this is what they call a transition <laughs> Off to death, back to sex, where it all started. Um, yeah, the, I would not. So as a ninth grader going into middle school, I would have been picked as least likely to write the book on sex, for sure. <laughs> and and throughout my youth. 12 or 10 or something, yeah. I mean, throughout, even like through all the ski racing years, like definitely voted least likely to write the book on sex. It was, I blame it on my neighbor, Cindy Pierce, um, who lives around the corner from me. A dog for drought, and and surprisingly, 
So we live two miles away from each other in the sticks. And in between our two houses is where this other woman, Mary Roach, grew up. And she's a very successful author. And the same year we came out with our book on sex, she came out with a book that was, you know, best New York Times bestseller, all of hers are, it's called Bonk, it's the science behind sex. So that one year, there were like a lot of sex authors in their little two mile span of Hanover Center Road and Dogford Road. It was sort of odd. <laughs> <laughs> but the, anyway, so, something Cindy of is water, a, right? I, I guess that's what it is. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I grew up. My parents were wonderful, but sort of like the June Ward Cleaver. Like I, they had just this. I was like, oh, you get married, you 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 grow up, and you you meet the one, and you get married, and you're married happily ever after, and everything's perfect. And wow, how do you really find that one person? You know, that was sort of my idea. That's what relationships and marriage were. And God, you know, never talking about sex ever. Um, and, my, and then Cindy, opposite end of the spectrum, she was the youngest of seven. So by the time she was, you know, four years old, she had, you know, her older siblings were getting married. And so all the, the girlfriends and wives were always in some ample sex talking all the time. So that was always her shtick. And so we, we would run together and she would, she started talking to fraternities about, about sex because you realize it's you know it's a topic nobody talks about and they really appreciate having you know a way to talk about sex um and that's part of healthy sexuality and blah blah, blah. so she was downloading from one of her talks at a frat house and she, Hold on, and now I back just, it up to a certain extent so what's the what's the title of the book and oh. what does the title mean okay <laughs> <laughs> finding the doorbell is the name of the book sexual satisfaction for the long haul so it's really about um, well, sexual, like sustainable sex, really. I mean, that's what it, because, you know, when you first meet, the sex is the easy part, right? That's kind of the thing that brings you together. That's like, that's the dessert. That's what everyone's, everyone's waiting for that. <laughs> and it happens and it's easy. And then, you know, relationship goes along and maybe you get married, maybe you don't have kids. And it, it just moves down the to-do list. And then all of a sudden it can become, you know, sex can become the thing that's actually standing between people. So this, this thing that brought you together can be the thing that sort of drives you apart. And um, Cindy though, wasn't, wasn't the doorbell a, a revelation for her? Wasn't that, I mean, this is, this is like her, first, her, her sexual pleasure kind of thing that, that she said. Her first realized. orgasm in the toilet stall or whatever. <laughs> she, <laughs> she's got a lot of stories but yeah she talks a lot about sexual pleasure um and how you know female and male and and you know the importance of it and uh yeah she's see i'm still have a hard time talking about i, I can't talk about cindy's orgasms i can't talk you know even hers <laughs> but she talks about her own awakening in a very frank way that sort of allows people to laugh about it and and to be more free talking about it so she was she was sharing her her communication skills and her and she's a comic right i mean this openness. is like she's a, she's a comic storyteller yes so she was she, she had a stand-up routine right yeah i can't remember how this worked she was working on a stand-up routine that had was a lot of like her sexual awakening was in this in this 
comedy routine. And I was helping her on that. And then she was doing these talks at these fraternities because we're right up the hill from Dartmouth and it's sororities. Like, so, you know, the women be more empowered to, to get sexual pleasure and to be able to communicate better with their partners and blah, blah, blah. And males to respect women more and to be able to give them pleasure. And I'm listening to her, blah, blah, blah. And I said, oh, Cindy, you got to write the book. And she's like, okay, let's do it. <laughs> like, what? Well, let's. <laughs> Well, that's that's a plural pronoun this last well, yeah <laughs> so we did it from the perspective of the, the you know the puritan silent majority of me and the you know open sex talker cindy and so we came at it from two different ways and we interviewed just a lot of people of of all ages but most you know most of them were probably around our age at the time we were i guess 40 or something um this is like you're you know, when harry met sally kind of thing yeah. Like yeah. the older people right. that, that they go to occasionally. Right, right, right. Go to the sages. So um, we just, and I was, you know, at that point, we kids, so my youngest was in first grade, my oldest was in third grade when the book came out. So we, and we, and it was the result of like all these interviews with people and, you know, just how do you communicate about sex? How is your sex life? Like what, not how is it, but, you know, sort of more, what are the things what are the impediments to it? What are the priorities? Like, how do you, how do you keep it going? Because I think you, you would get to the point where people are like, oh, you know, what, what is it? You, you have these visions of what everyone else, or just an, an idea of what, that everyone else has something better, something more exciting, something, you know, someone else read the book, someone else got the manual. So we were writing the manual. Um, no, just wanted to, I mean, kind of make people feel a little more normal, but also remind them that it, you got to make it a priority and just put a lot of stories in there and a lot of different topics. Um, and so we came out with this book. Um, my kids were appalled because, as I said, they were in first and third grade. What are they saying about this? What? I mean, mom. They said nothing and they didn't read it. What's that? <laughs> they said nothing. They were not to read it. No, they were, you know, the unfortunate thing is they knew that Cindy and I were going down that we did it at Dartmouth College and in, in the, the Hopkins Center, which is a little like a student center and there's food in there and stuff and it's college students going in and out. And if you're a 40 year old woman, two 40 year old women sitting there, you are invisible. So, you know, we could listen in on everyone's conversations. We could meet people there. We could talk about anything we wanted. Nobody was paying a bit of attention to us. So wrote the book there. Kids knew we were writing a book and the books came in we had a local publisher and um it's like oh the books are in the books are in so i was like oh i have time to go to, i'll pick up a bunch of boxes of the books put them in the back of my car and then i can pick up the kids on the way right back from school and i'm on the way to pick up the books i'm thinking wait a second those kids are going to see those books in the back of the car and there's no way they're not going to make me because i hadn't told them yet it was a book about sex <laughs> they're going to want me to open up that so i called the neighbor i was like can you pick up the kids at school there at, at the bus stop I got it. I can't do it. So I scurried home and stashed the books. And then I figured out a way to break it to the kids. You know, eventually that's okay. It's about marriage and about relationships. And they're like, okay. And they're looking at the cover and it's kind of a fun cover. And I was like, and they didn't, they never liked to read that much anyway. So they didn't have to worry about that, but I don't know. They just, we just sort of shuffled it away. <laughs> um, and then my son was so proud. He walked in at first grade and told his teachers like, my mom wrote a book and she's he's walking in the door and she's that way and I'm behind him and she's looking at me and she's like oh that's very exciting what's it about I said it's about marriage and relationships and I'm behind sort of mouthing I'm like it's about sex 
she's super school marmy like she was the martinet she was like the hardcore first grade teacher you know wrap your knuckles she's like hmm i'd be very interested in that <laughs> so i gave her the absolutely most inappropriate christmas gift the teacher's ever gotten she most inappropriate it. or most appropriate gift. exactly right yeah. <laughs> but it's one of the that, that book is one of those things too that i didn't know how appalled and you know horrified they were until years later you know which is fine i mean my job our job is to embarrass our kids really why have them if you can't embarrass them right <laughs> i mean <it's... laughs> i said you guys this is gonna be great all you have to do like you tell to as you're you know going through life just remind people that your mom wrote the book on sex not a book the book <laughs> I, how, how are those conversations now when you uh when when you bring them back you go so, so have you told your girl you know meeting the the girlfriends or <laughs> these kinds of things did, huh. did 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 my son tell you that i wrote the book on sex you know i i don't even know <laughs> I got a, hmm. I guess uh, her birthday's passed, but there's always Christmas. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a great gift from your, your boyfriend's mom? That'd be awesome. <laughs> it's solid. I mean, I have to say that, you know, it's a book that's not going out of style because nobody's ever, you know, people aren't going to figure out how to, you know, comfortably and regularly talk about sex with each other for it's i don't see us making a ton of progress so i think it's a solid book it'll always it'll stand the test of time evergreen i think is what they call that right yeah <laughs> bottom line punch down once a week whether you think you need it or not <laughs> which of course for newlywed to be like what once a week are you kidding me that's ridiculous and then you know a few years down the road you're like wow every week <laughs> Oh, uh, that is, that is really funny. So you're hitting, you're hitting all of the, all of the major, the major topics, right? I mean, so, so you're yeah. getting sort of the, the skiing, the psychological part the you're getting the sex part and now you're moving into, into food as yes. well. Yeah. And, and so, so there's a cookbook that's on the way. We won't put any pressure on you because there's <laughs> not really a deadline, but but what is what does bring it eats mean? Because it's a blog right now too, right? It's yeah, and I'm so tech like it's supposed to bring it is the name of the site, but bring it eats is the name of the URL because bring it was to I don't know. Basically, the, the website's called it, it, the name of the blog is supposed to be bring it, but it's bring it eats if you're looking for it. And the idea was just to and actually that came from Cindy too. The, the original recipe that I wanted to get out there was one that she runs an inn, and there was like some neighborhood order that got passed to them to from somebody else and it's like a big hit so it was it was basically trying to compile all those things that people always bring to your house that everyone asks for so trying to just like there was a there's a coleslaw that is sort of famous in these parts that I got out of like Sunset Magazine, you know, 20 years ago. And this thing stands the test of time. It's like, I gave it to the, I gave it to the plumber. Like I gave him the recipe and he was like, I feel so guilty because everywhere I bring it, old hero and it's not really mine, it's yours. I'm like, oh, it's yours. So I named it Hero Slaw. So Hero Slaw is like, was 
the impetus for that and this uh, this other order, this bruschetta. So famous in this kind of, I just wanted to be triangle of, of where you live, I guess, right? This, this yeah, it does. Yeah, I should see if Mary the sexual has. neighborhood here. Okay. <laughs> yeah, well, Cindy does run an inn, so she gets a lot of material for that. As an innkeeper, you get a lot of, you know, she gets a lot of good intel. <laughs> oh, her kids. Whew. Talk about being, she's done a better job embarrassing her kids than I have. Um, well, you can yeah, always so threaten was, your kids with that. Let me let me have that? Cindy. You can always threaten your kids. Let me have Cindy come over and talk to you about that. And her kids are rock solid too, because they like you can't. They, you cannot. They they will not flinch at anything. She trained them young. <laughs> that is funny. So what's so what's the idea? So it's the it's the recipes that that are always requested at like the yeah. potluck kind of thing. But it sounds right. like it's it's supposed to be relatively easy which yes. I means so, cooking can be intimidating, right? Right, so fuss-free stuff, like I don't, cause just, you know, life is too short to be like doing overwrought. I mean, that's great. Like, I'm glad that there are people that like to make their own croissant, that's awesome. Like, that's not me. And I would, there's certain things you just buy. So this is all stuff that, um, you know, you can see yourself also that travels well. So like you get invited to, this is also, it's stuff, that will get you invited back. That's the that's the other part. So someone says, come to our you know lake place for the weekend. Well, you don't come there with like a bottle of wine. No, no, you got to pack the frozen drinks and the cooler just right with the slaw with like all the special stuff. So when you get there and they're like, oh man, you got to come back next time. So that's kind of you just like it's like job security. It's it's invitation security. So you bring these the recipes and do you bring the sex book at the same time? <laughs> Like, like these are combo. these are the gifts that you can give, right? Here you go. I want to make sure that I get invited back. I want to be your favorite. Oh, or you just like leave the sex book on the you know on the bedside table as a little parting gift. <laughs> wow. Now the the storytelling part of it. What? Um, so you're doing the the cookbook, but then you're also you're involved in a, in a movie, aren't you? So. Right? That is, we're making a documentary about Spider Savage. So I'm back up involved with the, I'm on the board of the Bobby Addy Ski Foundation. And I, did you know Bob? Oh yeah, ever? Bob was a Middlebury yeah. guy. I knew oh, Bob. Oh, of course, yeah, duh, right. So yeah. And he Middlebury would do our guy. nationals. He came and did our nationals, which was great. So, yeah. so we were never on television. I mean, like ski racing really was barely on television at that time. Yeah. But he yeah. would come to what were the disabled nationals and now they'd be the adaptive nationals. But yeah, Bob came and, and loved it. The way yeah. that Bob loves skiing yeah. and just, yeah. Just such an enthusiast, such a cheerleader for the sport. And I mean, just for anyone that doesn't know his history, but you know, if you're a skier, you probably do, but he started, you know, st uh, coached at Middlebury and then coached at uh, Colorado at, at CU, but also the national team. So he started the U.S. ski team and then 10 years of that, and he moved on and he started the World Pro Tour and then, you know, did all the ABC commentating. And um, NASTAR too, right? Or NASTAR. He, would, he didn't start NASTAR. It was John Fry, but he popularized it basically. He knew how to get the right people involved and get, you know, grow things. Um, so then I was on the, when I first retired from the ski team I was like I was some kind of representative on the board of the ski team and then many years later I came back on the I'm on the foundation board of the U.S. ski team and Bob would come to 
in a big annual meeting at Beaver Creek and he would always sit in the back of the room like on until he was in a wheelchair and he would beat the same drum every time he'd back there be like out of nowhere he'd be like it's too expensive <laughs> it's like it's too so he was all about making sea racing more exciting which he thought the dual format that's he was he thought you know that was the best form of ski racing he thought it should be more affordable more accessible um for you know at grassroots level and also at the u.s ski team level because they were you know they were they used to have to pay a bunch to be on the u.s ski team they closed that funding gap now um he was about college racing about it being more viable getting more american college he hated all the you know having the circuit so dominated the college circuit so dominated by european skiers so there were certain things that were just his hot buttons um so when he before he passed away a bunch of the old pro racing buddies got together and started bob the Addy ski foundation and then after he passed away it sort of you know gained more it was like okay what is our what is our mission and it's really just sort of passing you know um championing the things that he cared about and that was accessibility dual format um uh actually not like the, the college stuff is kind of that's just that's that's a person that's something i do that's not necessarily within the purview of the bobby ski foundation um but within so so the ski found the bobby ski foundation has tried to find ways to keep keep more accept, accessible get skiing more exciting so it was there was this mission of like getting these dual starting gates like raising money to get a set of those parallel gates to, to these little areas so that they could put them up and get more enthusiasm around dual racing. Um, and then uh, as we were doing that, um, there's became this effort to get Spider Savage into the Ski Hall of Fame. Spider was kind of, um, he was an Olympic skier, he was on the US ski team. So he raced for Bob at CU and on the US ski team. And then he was like the marquee he was the guy for the Pro Tour. He won the first two years of the Pro Tour, I think. Um, and he was really the face of the Pro Tour. And, and then, let's see, so he, in 1976, he was killed by his girlfriend in Aspen. And because it was such a, I mean, he was such a big, everybody loved him. He was such a big presence. And I think it was because it was so traumatic. People kind of turned away from from that from anything about him so he was never inducted in the ski hall of fame and he totally should have been i mean he was and you know subsequently people that did get inducted found out that he wasn't an entire palmer was one of them said i never would have accepted if spider hadn't been in there you know so he just didn't know so he sort of so then so he got inducted to the hall of fame but then he, his induction was supposed to coincide it was supposed to be last year and then the pandemic got it pushed to this year and Anyway, it's pushed again. I think it's going to be next year. But in the meantime, we decided, you know, his story really needs to be told. And the people around that were his peers, you know, we've got to capture these stories now because let's see, it could be, you know, late 70s now, I guess. Um, so we got, went around gathering, you know, trying to get interviews to do this documentary. Um, because it's, and then like, find it, it's a sports story but it's a, it's a soap opera. It's, it's set in, in Aspen, which was like, you know, in the seventies and in Aspen, right. like. Well, that's so, so that's, what's kind of come out of this. You realize, I mean, I think so many people are intrigued by it and I am too. It was sort of skiing in its heyday, Aspen in its heyday, the pro tour. It was 
just this time, this moment in time that people are really nostalgic for. And he was this champion that was, you know, humble and and fun and fun-loving, um, good-looking, like long, and flowing blonde hair and the everything. You know, he was a mare, red, white, and blue, and the K twos. And I mean, he had it all going on, and was just genuinely a great human being. So it's been really fun sort of I think that you know we've sort of felt this responsibility like and he was very close he and Bob were very very close um and just became this this responsibility to kind of tell this tell this story um and and you know finally get him the you know the, the credit he was due um and also just to celebrate what skiing was and, and what it still is and you know maybe what can it can be it's funny seeing the pro tour come back um, and just kind of interesting to think maybe, you know, this will bring some of that, you know, fun back into it. Well, it's interesting also in that, and you, I'm sure you saw this when you first started going to World Cups, that you, you're an outsider again, right? You're an American going to Europe to ski, in, to compete in a European sport. But yet the pro tour, I mean, albeit there were there were a lot of Europeans on the pro tour as well, but it was an American version of yeah. the sport. It was sort of like the all-American. You talk about Spider being sort of the all-American guy with the red, white, and blue K2s and stuff like that. But but it, it, it's telling that that American Bob was, I mean, Bob was like he was a he was a football coach, I think, at Middlebury too. I mean, he wasn't just a ski coach, he was he he brought a football mentality, yeah, to yeah, he, ski racing, and he definitely was one of those like I mean, fake it till you make it kind of guy. <laughs> Just because he wasn't, I don't, I mean, he was he raced a little bit, but he actually, I think in Middlebury he actually got if he got recruited for skiing, it was Nordic skiing, it wasn't Alpine. I think he was on the Nordic team because I remember talking to one of his teammates and he said, "Oh no, no, Bob wasn't good enough to ski Alpine. He skied Nordic." Yeah. And then he, he like, I think he said he, he faked a heart condition or something. He didn't want to ski work. I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, and just bold and, you know, bold and enthusiastic and, and visionary doing big things. And I, um, it, he just, a lot of what he stood for is, you know, I think so what, some of what skiing needs today, somebody, one of the many people we interviewed said, we just, we need another, we need more Bob Beattis today in the sport. Well, it's, yeah, because I think he was the guy who was after the underdog, wasn't he? He was like, yeah. as the American, you were an underdog. And I, and he was the, he was the coach for, for like, uh, um, for Jimmy Huga and, and Billy Kidd, Billy Kidd in, was that 60, 1960? I believe in 64. 64. 64, 60, 68 was Grenoble. So we must have won their medals in 60. Yeah, maybe it was 60. It was either 60 or 64. And and yeah. a a um a bronze, you know, a, a a silver and a bronze in the slalom. And it's a and and it's a big deal. And but it's it's just cool. I mean, like having grown up in the sport, but also having grown up in the sport, like I said, I grew up on a tiny little ski area in Massachusetts, but it was like this, this little bit of Austria that they had, that they had picked up and plunked down in the middle of a 
textile town on the Connecticut River in Massachusetts, you know, where you had all the all the international flags like hanging off of the 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 A-framed lodge and the you know, the one brother ran the ski school, one Austrian brother ran the ski school and another Austrian brother ran the ski shop. And, and it was just like this little bit of, in, in this tiny little town, you'd never even know, but it's really cool to see somebody who, who makes it, who makes it ours as opposed yeah. to adopting theirs. Well, but it was, and but also that, I mean, that's, I think it was so cool when we were growing up is that all, you know, every ski area that was, it was all these Austrians coming over after the war, you know, this was where they came to, and they ran the ski schools and they really were such a big part of building our culture and so many of them stayed. Um, and then I do feel like skiing has lost, you know, as that sort of gone through and it, it, skiing became about property and, and, selling real estate it changed you know it definitely changed the field it wasn't the, the core it wasn't about the skiing as much anymore it was more about the lifestyle and lifestyle I don't mean the lifestyle we're, we think of with the ski racing but the you know, not the, the waking up at five o'clock in the morning and no, the, and the, yeah. no. having the you know the, the right outfit and the the right car and all that in the chalet that you use two weeks a year or whatever um, yeah. Well, you're coming into uh, coming into spring. I know that you are in a similar situation to us being in New Hampshire, where you go from winter to mud season to yeah. summer, where being in Utah, it's the same kind of thing where I woke up this morning and there were there was snow on the on the mountains that, you know, it's supposed to be 65 or something like that later on the way. But What's next and what do you think like like as you come out of a ski season is, is that something that mirrors kind of how you look at your how you look at your life and 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 what's what's kind of next in the season and what's next in the in the projects? Yeah, I'm a little bit well I I mean so <laughs> I'm clinging to the term dormancy now because there was just an article in the New York Times that named languishing as what many of us are feeling where we're not thriving but we're not like totally depressed so we're functioning but not and and then this other guy wrote something that said I prefer to think of it as dormancy like I'm just it's not the conditions to thrive right now so I'm saving up so I like I can't really envision what the next big thing is other than I know I want to do some writing with the, the book about my mom with Alzheimer's, I want to keep writing. I so in the meantime, I keep writing for ski racing. So I sort of keep writing the things that come along, and for skiing history, which is super fun because that again, that's just sort of interview, interviewing people and you know learning more about the sport and the people. Um, so I'm just hoping it all like I don't really know what the next big thing is other than you know working on the documentary. So I've got a lot of like irons in the fire. I'm not so sure what the next. Not, I don't have like its big driving mission right now. I've, I've got a lot of energy built up in whatever's going to sprout. <laughs> Saving up. Well, that's that's okay though, right? I mean, it's I often think of of ski racing as where you put a lot of energy into something into into your sport, and you don't really see 
the benefits of it, right? This is I, this is an analogy I've used so much. It's uh, it's this eighth grade earth science project where we melted ice and took the, you know, put it over a Bunsen burner and took the temperature and the temperature goes up and then it flattens out and then it goes up and it flattens out. And it's, it's creating this metamorphosis, which seems appropriate also given your, given the dormancy, given the, the rebirth that is, that is about to happen. We're starting to see some green leaves here, which is super exciting, but, but it's, but it's cool. And I think, I think it seems like, has it, has it become easier to embrace that sort of situation or is of there the, still like a, not really knowing like not really knowing yeah 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 i think so i mean i think you know they're definitely you know you listen to enough we've all listened to enough podcasts in, <laughs> in the last year plus and you know you get those people that are super directed and always know what they're doing but then you get some really accomplished people that sort of took things as they came and weren't a hundred percent sure what the next thing was, but I think you're, you're, you're right. It is very much like, like ski racing or, or any sport where you, you put in the work, you, you know, pound the rock and you don't know when that next jump is going to be. Um, so yeah, I think I've gotten that, you know, you get older and you either get better with it or you drive yourself crazy. So <laughs> I'm okay with it. The alternative isn't all that good. Yeah, that's true. Right, right. Don't drive yourself crazy. <laughs> That's for sure. Well, Edie, thanks so much. I mean, I think it really is this idea of of being uncomfortable, being comfortable, being uncomfortable, and going, okay, I don't know what it is, but it's going to work out. I'll get there. I'll see it when I get there. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a good <coughs> gift. When you say, "What do I feel responsibility to pass along?" I think that's something you can give. You know, kids, people you coach, like whoever. I mean, it, it's kind of nice to assure people they don't have to have it all figured out just keep doing stuff keep doing stuff that interests you and and i missed a couple springs skiing though for different reasons so i do know what's in my future is next spring i'm going to ski all spring <laughs> looking forward to that out in squat yes Perfect. <laughs> out west well this sounds great thank you so much for taking the time for joining us for being a voice in, in our community and, and helping helping kids, helping adults, having helping old ski racers who are still looking for that perfect turn to be able to put the pieces together. It's been absolutely, and, and for people, I, I mean, I don't want to talk exclusively about ski racing. I miss the whole sex part of things, you know, we're helping those people as well. You know, those of us, all of us. So thank you for all of what you're doing, Edie. Thank you, Chris. It's been a total pleasure. So thank you to all of you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for taking the time. I hope that you've enjoyed what you've heard. If you do, uh, please like us, please follow us. That's the greatest gift that you can give us that and telling your friends about what we're doing. So please tune in for the next one and we will look forward to seeing you. Uh, YouTube, Apple, Spotify, whatever it is, please like us, please, please follow us. So thanks very much. And we'll see you on the next one. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to Chris Waddell Living It for more stories on the adaptive community, the Paralympics, artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, experts in the experience of being human. Also follow us on Spotify, Apple, Facebook, and Instagram. I look forward to seeing you next week.